Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. Okay, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Genesis 36. As you're turning there, um, let me give you a little uh, preamble about where we've been and what we're gonna be talking about today. So we've been working through the book of Genesis and spending a good deal of time working on this, or looking at this guy named Jacob and his sons that he had um, through the process of marrying four different women. Um, Not good advice, by the way. But Jacob is this guy who God called, spoke to, gave a new identity to. And what we're watching as we're reading through Genesis is God working in Jacob, but also God working through Jacob. And that is gonna be the thread that kind of runs through the entire message today. The idea that God works in people and through people. That's really important. And I say it's important because as we're building um, our our way of thinking about things as we live here on this earth, as as we're constantly constantly being discipled by um, social media or our phones or the news or the weather channel, whatever your uh, go-to is to kind of get you excited or get you stirred up, Those things during the week are discipling. They're telling you how to think about the world. It is important for us to gather regularly and to look at the word and say, okay, I know that the world has been telling me to think about things a specific way, but you have a way of telling us to think about things, and I wanna embrace that. And this is a cornerstone to that idea. The idea that God works in people and through people at the same time is really, really important to us understanding the world we live in and how we operate um, you know, um, vertically in our relationship with God and also horizontally with our relationship with each other. Getting this right gives you the perseverance to sit next to somebody in church who is uh, fundamentally different than you at uh, the education level, the financial level, the political level. They vote differently than you. They think differently differently than you. This allows you to sit right next to them and allow yourself to let that stuff go and lift up Jesus and worship him and know that both of you are simultaneously in the middle of your transformation while God is also working through you on each other. Do you follow? This is important because if we don't get this, what's happening outside these walls over the next three months will rip the church in half. People will leave church, not even because of the pastor or because something that was said on Sunday morning. It's because somebody will read something on your Facebook wall and get offended and try to go find peace somewhere else. And when they get somewhere else, they're gonna realize, oh, there's nonsense over here too. And they're gonna leave and they realize, oh, there's nonsense over here. News flash, there's nonsense everywhere. You're not gonna find a church without it. What you're gonna find is a bunch of broken people who are in the middle of being changed, but also being used to establish God's kingdom at the same time. You follow? 
This is important. So we're going to follow this. We're watching God do this through Jacob. God is changing Jacob's heart, but also God is establishing his plans through Jacob. He's fulfilling the promise that he gave to Abraham and Isaac through the life of Jacob. So God is working in his people and he's working through his people. Um, And God is doing this in us today. And that's what I want us to understand. We're gonna see God doing it numerous times through 36, 37, and 38 today. And what I want it to do is demonstrate God's faithfulness and his steadfast love and, and give us a reference point for how we're supposed to act in the world today. It's supposed to drill inside of us some patience because if there's anything that we needed right now, it's patience. Amen? Okay. So God's working in and through the people that we're reading. He's working in and through us. Let's get down to it. Genesis chapter 36. Now, Genesis chapter 36 is an interesting chapter because most of it is just the genealogy of Esau. Now, I'm not going to bore you with um, an entire chapter of reading uh, just people's family's tree. That's kind of like going over to somebody's house and having to sit on their couch watching their um, you know, family videos. Or their, you know, their pictures of their missions trip or you know, the time they went to the Keys. It's, all, it's fun for them, but it sure isn't fun for you. <clears throat> Been there? Okay, I'm not the only one. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna read just a couple verses, six through eight, that kind of give us an understanding of what happened to Esau, where he went, and I wanna give some reflection on this culture that he established, and then we're gonna move on to Genesis 37. So Genesis 36, verses six through eight. It says... Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, all his beasts, and all his property that he had acquired in the land of Canaan. He went into a land away from his brother Jacob, for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. So let's talk for a minute about Esau, what happened to him and where he went. This is the last we're gonna hear of Esau, okay? With with the exception of a few references in the New Testament about contrasting Esau and Jacob. This is the last time we hear about his family. His family eventually becomes known as the Edomites, Um, When Israel leaves captivity in um, uh, Egypt and wanders into the desert, one of the first nations they run into or people group is the Edomites. And they're told in Deuteronomy 23, 7 um, to respect them because they are your brother. Okay, so while there were some people groups in the land of Israel that is Israel, the people, um, were told to conquer because they were living in the promised land, the Edomites were one of the people who were connected through the family lineage. So they were told to kind of leave each other alone and be nice siblings. We see them pop up again um, when Saul becomes king. Saul attacks them. When David is king, David uh, enslaves them. Ultimately, we see them again around 586 BC uh, when um, uh, Nebuchadnezzar comes in and he attacks Jerusalem and destroys it and takes everybody into slavery and brings them back to Babylon. The Edomites come in and we're told that they plundered the city. After the exile, when they come back, they come under a new name. The Edomites become the uh, Idumeans. 
And we don't hear much about the Idumeans until a guy named King Herod rises to power in Israel and we're told that he is an Idumean. And he is also the one who ordered the murder of every man child because he was trying to exterminate the promised king, Jesus. The point being that after this section of scripture, with with the exception of a few references of them popping up occasionally here and there, the line of Esau disappears and has no real legacy. And I wanna pause just for a minute and reflect on why that is. Why is it that a man who we're told was um, a skillful hunter, um, a child uh, in the promised line, his father Isaac, uh, was connected to Abraham. There's a promise that he was, he was supposed to have this birthright. He was supposed to because he was the first child. He's supposed to inherit these great things. Why is it a man like that? The, the, our culture would call him like the, the manliest man. Like I imagine this dude, he's probably like CrossFit body, full beard, um, really, really strong, lo- loves hunting. Um, the kind of guy just like most guys want to be like. Why is this guy fading into history and disappearing Um, and not really making any legacy for himself. I think the reason why is because Esau was the kind of guy who really only cared about the stuff in his life that was tangible. For a guy like Esau, he liked the hunt, he liked a good meal, and he liked women. He liked things that were in front of him that he could get a hold of, he could touch, that he could uh, receive some joy from, that he could master in his life. And what he did not care about is anything that didn't bring him immediate joy and give him the ability to pursue it um, within his lifetime. Essentially, that's the reason why he had no regard for things like birthrights or promises or a legacy. Esau was the kind of manly man who had time for things in the world, but did not have time for spiritual things that come after what we see. Now, Esau, his legacy is gone. But that attitude is alive and well in American churches. We don't have any more Esau's, but we have lots of guys who have the same attitude as Esau. Now listen, I wanna walk tenderly here because I know that the the last thing you wanted to hear when you show up to church is is some guy telling you what you're doing wrong in your life, right? But I would not be a good pastor unless I pressed on some of the things that would eternally have impacts on your life without bringing them to your attention so that you could at least consider and wrestle with them. So what I'm talking about is the attitude that I see in so many men where they're born into good, like God-fearing families. They attend church, but they never really have any concern for heaven because it just seems so far away. 
They are okay going to church because that's what they, their wives want them to do, or they start going to church, um, or they keep going to church because they want to convince some girlfriend that they're the kind, they're marrying material. But deep down in the heart, what they're lacking is an appreciation of value or a concern for anything that they can't touch. The idea being that everything here on earth that I can get my hands on has value, but things that I cannot see and I cannot touch has no value. This attitude is prevalent within the church and it's the reason why in most churches the attendance weighs heavily for women over men. Historically, there are always more women in church than men. This is why. Because the attitude of Esau has not disappeared. It has injected itself inside of men, and it has told us that the only thing worth our time is stuff that we can get right right now. Well, I'm telling you that there are lots of things in this world that hold more value than the stuff you can hold. Think about this. When, when we're told that when we come to Christ and we start changing, we're told that we're gonna start developing fruit, fruit of the Spirit, right? We're gonna start seeing things in our life like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. Those things you can't grab a hold of with your hands. Those things are intangibles. And those things weigh heavy when it comes to things in eternity. The things that we can grab a hold of and master and control are the things that draw our attention. But God is saying, I want a group of people, not just men, especially men, but I want a group of people, I want to make a family out of people who are are not a family because of the earthly things they have in common, but they're a family because of what I did, and that stuff you can't just grab a hold of, like uh, you, you can't just manipulate and grab a hold of. Of love. It's an intangible. It's something that holds more value than the coins in your pocket or the money in your wallet or even how many children you have or the fact that you have or you don't have a job. Are you following me? Yes. Now, maybe you know somebody like this and maybe you are somebody like this. And this is the first time that this has kind of slapped you in the face and you thought about it this way. I have something that I want to say to you today because it is not okay for us as men to live any more seconds in our life treating the things that God says are most valuable like they don't have any worth. You follow? And the beauty is that that tangible stuff that we like saying is valuable That stuff will take on new meaning if you actually value what's important, the stuff you can't touch. Your relationship with your wife, that physical being who lives in your home, 
that, that person that you married, that, that physical relationship, your wife, the love for your wife will take on complete new meaning and it will skyrocket into places you didn't even know possible when you start valuing the stuff that you can't touch. Because you're convinced that, that in this relationship, in order to make it better, you gotta do stuff. That's not how it works. If you want this relationship to grow and be better, you gotta be stuff. And I hear this constantly from wives, like I just wish my husband would do this, I wish, I wish her husband would, would pray more, I wish, no you don't, that's not really what you want. That's not what you want. Because that stuff comes as a byproduct of something in here. So when you say, I just wish my husband would pray more, lead Bible studies, I wish he would do the dishes, that's not really what you want. What you really want is for God to get a hold of his heart and, and wreck his life, because when that happens, guess what is gonna start following? Because faith without works is dead. When, when you have real, genuine faith, works show up. So let's not pretend that the way that we fix our families is guys just start doing more stuff and valuing the things that we've always valued and changing. No, what really needs to happen is guys need to get wrecked at the heart level and our value system needs to get turned upside down so we treasure the things that God says we need to treasure and guess what's gonna follow behind that? So what do I say to the people this morning? If you know somebody like this or you are somebody like this, I would tell you that it is not too late to change your priorities. Today is a perfect day to go home and say, I'm gonna start making some different choices about what I value in my life. Let me, let me read this scripture. This is 2 Corinthians 4, 18. Paul says, look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Now that's not a recommendation, that's not good advice, that's a command. If you're following Jesus, we're commanded, dudes, this is what you're supposed to be doing. You are supposed to be looking not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, which means they're not going to last. They're like a, a train who pulls in the station and they're going to be gone. You ever wonder why your, your heart is, is never really settled? It's because you, you're, you're, you're wanting something that's here for a season and then gone, and then something else comes along. Oh, well, I guess this is the thing that I want. No, and then that's gone. I guess then, no. That's the reason why you're unsettled. That's the reason why in the later parts of your life you feel unsettled, unhappy, and uns, uh, like uh, unstable, because the thing that you're putting your hope in is this train that shows up and then is gone, and then you never see it again. So the command as you're following Jesus is the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen, they are eternal. And that's what we should be fixing our eyes on. Now, there's a little disclaimer here. You may be listening to this and saying to yourself, okay, I, I hear you, but I'm still struggling. Because I, I don't, if I'm honest, I don't really want those things. I know I should want those things, but I don't really want them. And so when you say go home and start making some different priority changes and start doing some things differently, like I hear what you're saying, but I don't know that I can do that because I don't know that I really want that. So I can make some change and it might stick for a week, but ultimately the things that I really want are gonna come to the surface. So, so what's, what's the point? How does, this, how does this all end? Well, look, here's the thing. You can't, you can't make yourself have new desires. That's a God thing. Only God has the power to take what's in your heart, rip it out, and put something new in there. Okay, well that's, that's good to know. It takes it off my plate, 
but you still have a plate, guess what's on your plate? Wanting. Wanting to want different desires. We can say, well, I don't really want different desires. Okay, I understand. You're going to grow, but my question is, do you want to want different desires? Do you want God to give you a desire to get new stuff? Do you want, like when I say go home today and start contemplating what is most valuable, what I'm saying is go home and not start changing your calendar. Maybe that's part of it, but really what I'm saying is going home and getting on your knees and saying, God, the stuff that you want me to want, I don't even care about. So I don't know where to start, but I do know that I want to want something different. So please give me a desire to want something different. Because I don't even know how to start this, but I know that from your word, I'm supposed to be walking differently, so show me how to begin. Are you following me? That's where it starts, guys. You have to want to want different desires. And then God steps in and changes you into a man you didn't even know possible. Amen? All the wives said, Amen. <laughs> All right, go to Genesis 37. All right, so Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. So then we're going to switch over to Joseph. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pastoring, pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with his sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons. Also bad advice. Because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably, peace, peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. And he said to them, hear this dream that I dreamed. No, Joseph, we don't want to hear your dream. All right, but listen, listen to this. This is like, you know, when, uh, when your teenage kids start describing memes to you? Look at this. Guess what I saw today? Uh, no, I don't want to hear it. <clears throat> behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves, they gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. Boy, I wonder what the interpretation of that dream is. His brother said to him, are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream, and then he told it again to his brothers and said, behold, I have another dream. Behold, the sun and the moon and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what, what is this dream that you've dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Now, before we get into the dreams, I want to make one observation. 
You'll notice as we continue through Genesis that the writer of Genesis, who we think was Moses, um, jumps between the name Jacob and Israel kind of frequently. Now, some scholars think that this has to do with the old nature and the new nature of Jacob and Israel. And I, I like that idea, except for the fact when it doesn't work. <laughs> there are some situations where when, we, when, when the writer refers to Jacob, we get a sense that um, we're calling him Jacob because he's acting like his old self. And there are times when the writer refers to him as Israel because he is acting like the new identity that God gave him. But it doesn't always work, and so I don't want to put too much weight into that interpretation. I think last week I may have incorrectly um, led you to believe that, that moving forward, um, we're not going to see the name Jacob anymore. I don't remember if I said that or not. What, what I was trying to say was that from the point that God first wrestles with Jacob and says, you have a new identity and it's Israel. From that point up into the point where Jacob moves to Bethel and it happens again where God says, okay, you have a new identity in Israel. Between that period, Jacob is never referred to as Israel, ever. Between those chapters, it's always Jacob, even though he had a new identity. But after Jacob finally obeys and gets his family back to Bethel and he builds the, the, uh, the, the, the place of worship, it's at that point that we start seeing Jacob referred to as Israel. Not exclusively, but it's only after that moment that we see him referred to by this other name. The point, I think, being that obedience is the natural response to our new identity. It's the only natural thing that you can do when God gives you this new life. The only proper response cosmically to God saying, I'm making you a new man is for you to act like that new man. And that's the reason why Jacob is never referred to Israel with that new identity until he actually obeys. But the moment he does, we start seeing that played out in his life. Now, we're gonna turn to Joseph like we do in verse two. Joseph, a couple things. He's a 17-year-old who doesn't fit in with his brothers. He's his dad's favorite, and he receives dreams that makes things worse between his brothers. And it's interesting because who's giving Jacob those dreams? God. So God knows that Jacob doesn't get along with his brothers, and God's making it worse by giving Jacob all of these dreams. God, what are you doing? See, if I was doing this, God, that's not how I would do it. That doesn't seem nice. That's the attitude we take a lot, right? When we see God working in somebody we don't like, well, surely that can't be God, because I don't like that person. Or, or there's no way God could be using that person because I don't like the way they deliver things. I don't like the way they talk. I don't like the way they speak about things. They're wrong about X, Y, and Z, and therefore they cannot be right about A, B, and C. Now let's look at these dreams for a second. Because these dreams, they show what I was trying to talk about at the very beginning of this message in how God works in people, but also through people. Now Joseph is not an innocent man. In Hebrew, when it says that he brought a bad report to them, to their father, that phrase, bad report, doesn't necessarily mean that he was um, telling his dad that his brothers did wrong. 
The Hebrew there means that he was bringing a message about something they did and delivering it in a way that kind of made them look bad. So Joseph is he's kind of a tattletale. So he's, he's probably not the kind of person that if we're looking at people, we're like, yeah, God's going to use that kid. No, nobody can stand this kid because he's the good little boy. He's the good little sinner. He's the goody two-shoes. He's the one who's always got, you know, he always seems to be coming across as being in the right. Those kind of people get under our skin. So we're not going to choose those people. But we're also not going to choose like the brothers. Like clearly they're living with hatred in their heart. So like, God, I don't know how you're going to bring the promise that you gave to Abraham through this wild, wicked family, but like, good luck. Because I don't know how you're going to pull this off. Because all these people are, they've lost their minds. But this proves what we're talking about in the sense that God is working in Joseph, but also working through his family. Because what God does here is he's working in Joseph. He's working on Joseph. He's changing Joseph's heart. He's changing the hearts of the brothers. They don't really realize it yet, but we'll see the heart change later on after a famine hits and they have to go to Joseph and ask for help. What God is doing is he's working through the hatred inside of his brothers to bring about his own personal plans. So God, this is interesting, God is using the hatred to position Joseph to provide salvation because of the hatred. You follow? God says this family is going to need saving. So here's how I'm going to do it. I'm going to use the brokenness in the family to accomplish the forgiveness. I'm going to save this family through their hatred. What does this sound like? It sounds like the way that Christ brought salvation to us. How is it that the world has redemption? Because a group of men got together and falsified charges to Jesus and they murdered him. But he had to be murdered to cover that sin of murder that led to the cross in the first place. God is working in the heart of men and he's working through the heart of men all to accomplish his his principles um, and his purposes. Now, one final thought on these dreams before we move on and I I give you some more um, understanding of the way that God is working in and through. This is important for us to understand because um, It's common in in some church circles to just assume that things like dreams and visions happened in here, but they don't happen in here or in here. There's no indication anywhere in this Bible that things like dreams and visions have ever ceased. In fact, we're told that this stuff will increase the closer we get to the return of Christ. In fact, in the planting of the early church in the New Testament, you've got Acts 9, Acts 10, Acts 16, Acts 2, 17, where we're told that dreams and visions are going to increase. You've got Gentile people, Roman soldiers, 
getting visions. You've got Peter sitting up on the top of his house one day, and he sees this vision that essentially tells him, hey, Gentiles are now part of the salvation process. Go preach the gospel to them. (laughs) Praise God that Peter got that vision, or none of us in here would be qualified to even come before the Lord. So if we understand from the Word of God, one of the things that God does like doing is giving His people dreams and visions. Some of the dreams and visions you've been having that you don't want to tell anybody because it seems really weird might actually be God speaking to you. But I want to caution you because just because God is giving you dreams and visions does not mean you need to go share them with somebody. Sometimes God gives us dreams and visions to edify us, to equip us, to convict us. And the purpose is for it to stay right here so it can do something right here. Now, sometimes those things are given to us by God in his grace and in his wisdom for the purposes of edifying, lifting up, equipping the body of Christ. But there is a litmus test that we should always run through because you will think some things came from God that did not come from the Lord and are contrary to this. So when you feel like the Lord is speaking to you through a dream or in vision or in your prayer time and the Lord is speaking to you, what, what standard do we use to know, okay, this thing is from the Lord. This thing is not from the Lord. This is my own selfish desires. How do we know? you use this. God is never going to contradict himself. So if God speaks to you in dreams and visions or in your prayer time, it will never contradict this. If it does, I got bad news for you. You're the one who's wrong. You heard it wrong. Your flesh digested it wrong. You made it up. But for us to say, well, I'm worried that that's gonna happen too often, so let's just throw the baby out with the bathwater and pretend that that's not a thing God does, well, that's not instructed to us in the New Testament. That's not what we're told to do. We're told to take this stuff, wrestle with it, and really work through it, but that requires that we know the Word. How can you weigh what you heard from God against what's in here if you don't know what's in here so your life has to start with being surrendered to this. Amen? Amen. All right, now Genesis 37, go to verse 12. So his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. That's interesting. Didn't we just read about Shechem last week? Yeah, that's the town that that, uh, Jacob had no business bringing his family. Well, now his sons are bringing their flocks up to hang out around Shechem. So Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pastoring the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, here I am. And he said to them, go now and see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron and he sent them to Shechem. A man found him wandering in the fields and the man asked him, what are you seeking? He said, well, I'm I'm looking for my brothers, but I can't find them anywhere. Tell me, please, where are they pasturing the flock? And the man said, well, oh, they've, they've gone away. Way, way, way. For I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. I mean, they're in Alabama now. <laughs> so Joseph, man, they're a long way from where they're supposed to be. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them in Dothan. 
And they saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they started to conspire against him to kill him. And they said to one another, here comes the dreamer. Now let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then he will say that a fierce animal, and we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, let's not take his life. And Reuben said to him, shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So Reuben had plans to come back around later and pull him out of the pit. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit, and the pit was empty, there was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat lunch, this is what you do after you throw your brother into a pit. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh, and on their way to carry it down to Egypt. And Judah said to his brothers, all right, Judah, this is important because we're going to talk about him in the next chapter. What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. <laughs> let's, let's not kill him because he's our brother, but let's sell him as a slave. And his brothers listened to him. Then the Midianite traders passed by and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver and they took Joseph to Egypt. Now Reuben, who was away and is now back, returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit and he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, the boy's gone and I, where am I supposed to go? I'm, I'm the oldest brother. I'm supposed to be looking after him. They took Joseph's robe, they slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in blood. And they sent the robe of many colors, brought it to their father and said, this is what we found. Please identify whether it's your son's robe or not. Man, these guys, huh? Wonder where they got it from. Their dad. And he identified it and said, it's my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put on sackcloth and his loins and mourned for his son many days. And all the sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, no, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. This, thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Now we just read the story of Joseph and the betrayal by his brothers, right? And in this story, we've got a son who was betrayed by his own family, treated like an outcast, right? And we've got a son who is declared dead to his father, but ultimately we know the end of the story, he's not actually dead, he's living in Egypt and he will return to his father one day. The father would get his son back and through this process, the brothers would see, receive salvation. This story is about how God is working in and through Jacob's family. He's working in Jacob's family because this process is changing the boys and also providing for their immediate salvation. But he's also working through this family because what God is telling Israel is that I'm gonna save you. Because this is not the last time that we're gonna hear of a son being betrayed. It's not the last time we're gonna hear about that son being betrayed, being declared dead, 
only to return back to life later and provide salvation to his people. God worked in Joseph to save his family, but God, God also worked through Joseph to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Are you starting to see what I'm saying here? I want this to become as clear as possible. God is always working in and through his people. And most times he is simultaneously working in and through his people to accomplish his plans. And when I say his people, I mean you. Right now, God is simultaneously transforming your heart and also through the Great Commission, asking you to get to work in building his kingdom. And we say things like, oh, I'm not qualified. I don't know enough. I'm not ready. I'll look like a fool. I can't preach the gospel because I don't know what I'll say. I'll probably make it worse. If you read the New Testament, the 12 guys that Jesus picked, I promise you can't make it worse. <laughs> we don't get to live any more of our lives saying, well, I'll be ready uh, tomorrow or next year. I'm just, I'm not ready yet. No. You are always ready for something that he is calling you to put your hands on the plow and begin. Why? Because God is always simultaneously working in you and through you. And the beautiful thing about it is that the fact that you are not polished means that in working through you, he is teaching patience to somebody next to you. This is my favorite part about it. Because we all like to think, well, church would be a whole lot better if this ever was, was more like me. Well, if that was the case, then the things in you God doesn't like and wants out would never leave. Because when you're around yourself, all you get is more of yourself. But God likes putting a bunch of people who are different in the same room, rubbing shoulders together to work patience and love and kindness in you. Right, because it is, it, is, it is a test on our character to sit behind somebody in church that taps their pen the entire time. Can you, can you do that somewhere else, please? Right? To sit, sit in a room with people that you, you know, you follow on Facebook, like, oh, I don't see how they can just see... I don't see how they could vote that way or put that out there or post this or act this way and call themselves a Christian. All the while, the father is up in heaven looking down at his children saying, we've got a lot of work to do, boys. All of us are in the middle of our transformation and all of us are being used by God to build his kingdom and sometimes work on transforming the people around us. So we like to excuse ourselves from the process because we don't like the way God does it. But you're gonna find yourself coming back to this eventually anyway. So the good news of this is that God likes using your messed up situation for his glory. God likes redeeming your failures and using them for his purposes. And God really likes saying that nobody is beyond transformation. As long as the attitude in your heart mirrors what we find in Hebrews 11, 13 through 16, an attitude that acknowledges that we are strangers and exiles on this earth, people seeking a new homeland, people who desire a better country, and that is a heavenly one, and people who are not ashamed of God, but long for him to prepare a place for them. 
What makes us okay, even though we're not okay, is that in the middle of us not being okay, like Paul would say, I do the things I don't wanna do and I don't do the things that I wanna do. In the middle of that struggle, almost like Jacob wrestling with God, in the middle of all that, we know deep down, we may not be perfect, but we sure don't want to be this way. We sure don't want this world. We sure don't want what the world offers us. We want a better home, a heavenly home, something that is promised to us in eternity. That desire, that one desire is what qualifies you for God. God to start working in you and through you. That's why God chooses to do it, because he loves getting the glory. Because what happens is, if you were perfect and nothing needed to be changed and you accomplished great things, everyone would say, oh, look how amazing Chris is. Jessica is fantastic. Look at all the things Jessica can do. But if Jessica is a nightmare, and God uses her anyway, God, everyone says, God, look at how amazing God is because of how he changed Jessica. Now, my patient, or my, my forget, my, my, sorry if your name is Jessica, if your name is Chris. But the point is, is that none of us in here would look at God if the finished product was perfect. God enjoys using broken, messed up people because the glory always goes to him because no one's gonna look at a broken, messed up person and say, look at how much they accomplished. And everyone's gonna say, no, look at how much God accomplished through this person. And that is the segue into Genesis 38 because what is going to happen in Genesis 38 is probably one of the most, is one of the weirdest, most nightmarish kind of chapters ever. And for that reason, I'm only gonna read half of it. All right, so if you wanna be blown away, go home and read the rest of it yourself. But I'm gonna give you a little parallel, a little preamble into Genesis 38, and then I'm gonna read the last of it. This chapter is very strange, and it seems out of place until you get to the very end of it. So this chapter is all about Judah. You remember the last chapter and I told you, hey, um, Judah was the one who said, we're gonna sell Joseph into slavery. We're gonna watch this transformation right before our eyes. So Judah is the one at the beginning of 38 who is set to inherit the birthright. Why? He wasn't the oldest, so why was he getting the birthright? Because Reuben um, uh, slept with his stepmom, okay? So he performed incest. Simeon and Levi, they murdered an entire town as revenge for their sister's assault. So they have all been disqualified as ones who will inherit, and now it falls to Judah. So he's the one who's supposed to be the promised one. The thing about Judah is that he had quite a sexual appetite. He liked the ladies a lot, and he liked the wrong ladies. He was going into town one day, and his eyes caught this Canaanite woman who were not told her name, but he marries her, and he has three sons with this woman. And the sons, we're told, are all wicked evil dudes. So Judah says, all right, we're going to continue the family lineage. The promise of Abraham is going to be fulfilled through me because I got the birth right now. So my boys need to get married. So we're going to find my boys a wife. We're going to find them a wife from the Canaanite women. This is a big no-no. Do you remember how, how, much, uh, how, how much work Abraham went into defining his, his uh, son, a, a woman who was not from Canaan because Canaanite girls are not the marrying type. They're not who you bring home to mom. But these boys, are, Judah's like, yeah, man, this is perfect. This is just the kind of women I want. So he finds this girl named Tamar, and he gives Tamar to his oldest son, whose name was Ur. <laughs> no joke, his name was Ur, E-R. So Judah, 
He gives Tamar to his oldest son, but we're told that Ur was evil in the sight of the Lord, so God killed him. So now Tamar doesn't have her husband anymore. So Judah says, all right, according to our traditions, in order to continue the family lineage, Tamar, I'm going to give you to my next son. Right? Gross. We don't like that. But this is what they did. So Tamar marries the next youngest son. And this kid was just as wicked as the last one. He refused to have a child with Tamar. So Tamar is left without a child. The son refuses to follow the family lineage and continue uh, and, and obey his dad and actually have children and continue the promise through his line. So Judah says, all right, that marriage is, is done with. So Tamar does not have a husband now. Judah says, okay, when my youngest son gets old enough, you can marry him. But Judah kind of conveniently forgot about this boy. And then Judah's wife dies. So Judah, okay wife, three sons, one, two, first sons, they're gone, they're evil. The last son, Judah never gives to Tamar. So now Tamar doesn't have uh, any um, husband, and now Judah does not have a wife. So Judah can't have more kids without a wife, and the youngest son doesn't have a wife. So the lineage, the promise from Abraham is in jeopardy. Now, there's an important piece of information we need to understand, and that is everybody at this time knew the promise that God gave Abraham that there would be a family lineage and a promise of this land through him, which is one of the reasons why all the women loved to flock to Jacob and his dozen, because there's a promise coming out through this family somewhere, and I want to get close to it. Tamar is wise. Even though she's a Canaanite girl, she's wise. She knows that Judah's foolishness is going to cause God's promise to be sealed up. So she takes matters into her own hands. And I promise the way she does this, none of y'all are going to like it. She dresses up like a prostitute. Here we go. She goes down to the local temple where people come down to worship in order to get a better crop when it's crop season. She knows that Judah will come by and he's got a taste for ladies. So she dresses up like a prostitute. She sits over there and Judah comes by. She seduces Judah and they agree on payment for the evening. The payment is Judah was going to give her a goat, which is, that's, that's kind. But he didn't, have, he didn't have a goat on him, because we don't carry goats around anymore. With my goat in my other pants. He didn't have a goat on him, so what he did was he left his signet, which is kind of like his ring, his staff, and his cord. He left, went home, Tamar got pregnant, and Judah never knew who it was. Judah thought he was spending the night with a prostitute. Well, a few months later, Tamar gets pregnant, and Judah finds out. And Judah's like, oh, so this young girl is too good for my boys and my family, so let's let's put her to death. And that's where we're going to pick up the story. Go to verse uh, 24 in Genesis 38. About three months after Judah was told that his daughter, or his uh, daughter-in-law, Tamar, um, was being immoral, moreover, she is pregnant by immorality, Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. Whoa, man. <laughs> that escalated quickly. 
As she was brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet, the cord, and the staff. Oh, burn, 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 burn. Need some cold water for that? Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Sheila? (laughs) And he did not know her again. So when the time of her labor came, so he didn't burn her to death. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on the hand saying, this one came out first. Why do you do that? Because in this family, twins like to wrestle in their womb. But he drew his hand back and behold, his brother came out first. And she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. And afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. Now, as we read the story, it seems shocking and, well, we'll say it, gross. But what we see here is God working through Tamar to preserve Judah's lineage. Now, let me show you something about Judah's lineage. You don't have to turn there, just listen to me. In Matthew 1, 1 through 3, it's a family lineage, and this is what it says. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar and Perez, the father of Hetzeron, Hetzron, the father of Ram. So, follow me. God saw fit to include Tamar in the family lineage of Jesus. A woman who preserved the family lineage and thank God, because we're all sitting here because of it, by dressing up like a prostitute to preserve the family lineage. Not advisable, not what I would tell you to do in order to keep God's promises, but the desire in her heart to keep that promise provided the Christ child to be born in this lineage. But she's not the last one. Tamar is included in there, and so is Rahab the harlot, Ruth, and Bathsheba. Remember Bathsheba? I remember Bathsheba. We all remember Bathsheba. All four women were Gentiles and all four women had scandalous marital unions. What's the point of me bringing all this up? The point is that God works in and through people to accomplish his plans. And sometimes the way he works is not our favorite. And sometimes the people he used are the ones that we can't stand. But God, being rich in his mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Jesus Christ, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. 
Thanks again for spending time with us and God bless.